0: Welcome back to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. I've hosted more than 50 episodes of this show. And aside from my esteemed colleagues at Tech Freedom, I've yet to welcome a return guest. That changes today. Elizabeth Nolan Brown is here. She's a senior editor at Reason. Moreover, she's a fantastic writer on tech policy. If you follow her work as you should, you'll see why I'm so pleased to have her back. Today, we're gonna to be discussing two of Elizabeth's recent pieces for reason. One is on screen time and youth mental health. Elizabeth dove into the most recent research on how, or rather whether, television, social media, and video games affect young people's well-being. She's got some bad news for anyone who likes stoking moral panic. The other item is Elizabeth's December cover story for Reason Magazine on the costs and benefits, mainly benefits, it turns out, of algorithms. That piece, too, gives the pearl clutchers, if I may use that term, a good kick in the shins. As Elizabeth explains, a lot of the criticism that the algorithms, quote unquote, receive these days stand on nothing more than vibes. Elizabeth, welcome.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me back on.
0: It's so good to have you. Um, I really do mean it to our listeners. Follow Elizabeth's work. She, uh, In addition to just being a good writer, you pick good topics. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So um, let's start with the research on young people and screens. We've got um, very young children and television and then um, preteens and smartphones. We've got uh, teens and social media and we've got children and video games. So we're covering the landscape. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, go ahead.
1: We we published this piece at reason the week after Christmas because we were kind of thinking, you know, there's going to be a lot of people at with their kids at home during break during that time, like freaking out, like oh no, my kid of whatever age is spending too much time in front of whatever kind of screen. So, these are kind of studies published in the past that we're going to talk about that were published in the past like six months or so. That that yes, like you said, cover the gamut of different kinds of a uh, tech and different ages of of children.
0: Yes, I also liked that all of them are from 2022. Um, yes, the the Christmas break you're giving me flashbacks because. My parents let us have video games, and it, like so many households, it was a struggle between, you know, them trying to curtail the time, and you know, when you're a little kid, you have no, you have no, your horizon of the future is so short. Of course, you're going to play video games all day long if you're able to. And after Christmas, I would often get a video game or two. And my parents would just know that it was a lost cause for the next week and like the week between Christmas and school returning, it was just like a bender, you know. <laughs> God only knows how many hours of video games I played in the And you turned out weeks. okay, right? I'd like to think <laughs> so. I'd like to think so. Maybe that's uh I don't want to put that to a poll. Let's start with the first, let's 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 rewind from the teenage years and video games down to toddlers. Um this you, The first study you talked about, it's dear to my heart um, because my wife and I have three toddlers um, and we've been known to park them in front of the television for Coco Melon and Daniel Tiger and Peppa Pig. All of my fellow parents of toddlers will recognize those. We feel guilty about it at times. I think my wife a little more than me. Um, but the first study that you discussed uh, gave me a little bit of relief. So please tell us about it.
1: Yeah, so this this was a study published in the journal Frontiers of Psychology back in August. And researchers at the University of Portsmouth and a French university, they looked at 478 previous studies on screen time in kids under three, specifically TV time with kids under three. Um, And they found that the effect was context dependent. It wasn't about the precise amounts of time spent watching TV. It wasn't, you know, oh, 20 minutes or an hour or two hours. It wasn't this, you know, this much is okay and this much is not okay so much as what was watched and under what circumstances. So the researchers found that, you know, age appropriate shows designed to encourage interaction, especially, and shows that were watched with a caregiver nearby so that, the, you know, an adult could talk about what was going on and answer questions and things like that. TV shows of that sort or watched in that context had a positive impact on cognitive development. There were also, you know, studies that found a negative impact, but these either tended to not be context tended to not be context specific. So when they looked at the context, it was like, oh, you know, it matters what you watch and it matters what how you watch it, um, which, you know, makes sense, right? It's kind of crazy to me when people believe that sort of simply watching any, your kid watching any TV is gonna negatively affect them. Obviously too much time in front of TV will detract from other things like, you know, um, physical activity and hands-on play and other things that are important for, for health and development, but, you know, a lot of these studies that are really panicky about kids and screen time they tend to rely on trumping up correlation and not considering alternative explanations i think you know like the kinds of kids whose parents let them watch tons of tv probably differ in a lot of ways from the kinds of parents and families who let their kids watch the least. you know they might be parents who um you know they might have different socioeconomic differences the parents who watch their kids um, make let their kids watch a lot of tv might, you know, not be the best parents or they also might be really good parents, but they have to work a whole lot and, you know, they're, they're away from their kids because of that and, you know, they have less money. So there's like so many confounding factors other than the screen time. And it's just so strange because, you know, a lot of the times with stuff like this, media and politicians and people really afraid of any and all screens, they tend to act like TV time or screen time in general has this sort of mystical power to make kids dumb, you know, no matter what. So that's why I really liked this study, because like I said, you know, it was a meta-analysis. They looked at hundreds of previous studies and and they found that, you know, it's it's not magic. It matters what you watch and in and, and what context.
0: Yeah, that was so, that was enlightening to me. I hadn't thought about, even though it's like a basic point, that there's a difference between parking your kids in front of CNN, where it's just a bunch of lights to them and they yeah. don't really understand versus, to use another one, my kids, the, the latest one, my kids love Sean the Sheep and you can tell they're interacting with it they love the slapstick uh the you know the dog getting hit by the door or whatever um i've mentioned on the show multiple times that they used to they've actually grown out of this they used to like on youtube just garage tra- uh, uh garbage trucks just garbage <laughs> trucks on the street youtube you can find these just an hour of footage of garbage trucks and it's been interesting because and i'll return to this point um the the programming of a child's brain the software if you will like it 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 forms largely on its own and they're ready for a certain kind of programming at a certain age and as long as you kind of listen to them and put on what they're interested in they will figure out sort of they want to watch garbage trucks and then as they can slowly understand more they want something else and then of course this is totally anecdotal but in the case of my kids when they've had enough TV, they'll get up and start tearing the house apart. Like they won't, you can't, they're not potted plants. You can't just make them watch TV uh, once they're over it. But uh, that is just my kids. That's that's my, my, nephew my house.
1: My nephew who's now four definitely went through a, like just watching garbage trucks or fire trucks on, on YouTube phase two for a while, so.
0: Oh, it's fantastic. Tractors, fire trucks, and they have the funniest questions. It's very entertaining. Okay, so that's uh, television and toddlers. Uh, Let's move up in age a bit. Um, This one worries a lot of people. It's not quite uh, my problem yet, but it will be. When do you give your kid a smartphone? Uh, And what does the evidence say there?
1: Yeah, there was a study published in September in the journal Child Development. And it found essentially that the age at which preteens and teens got their first phone didn't matter. It didn't have a positive or negative effect on their mental health and social adjustment. Uh, the researchers found this by, they studied a group of kids for five years. They followed them from when they were ages uh, seven to 11 at the start of the study to when they were, um, for five years after that. And they didn't find any sort of, uh, you know, differences in, in general social functioning or mental health based on what age that they got their phone. Um, and all, almost all the kids by the end of the study by ages, by age, you know, 16 had a phone. They found the average age uh, of getting a phone was 12.6 years old. Um, and the researchers were saying, you know, this doesn't mean that an individual child, obviously maybe isn't, you know, it's maybe too early for an individual child or you might wanna wait longer for one or give some kid who's particularly mature one earlier. But, you know, they, they said the takeaway should be that there is no universal age at which it's right or wrong to give a kid a cell phone.
0: Um. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of little complicating factors in there that I, I, I you know, I wouldn't want to be too blase. I actually read one. There was an article I read over the break about how like smartphones affects on adults, and a study that found that the average professional, sort of white collar worker, checks their email 77 times a day. That's insane. Um, yeah, what is wrong with those uh, yeah. people? <laughs> Well, I don't know if I do 77, but I, I I, get it. And so it's weird because I don't want to make it sound like smartphones don't have some effect on your brain. And there's also been studies where they put your brain under MRI and, and find that, you know, your reward centers or whatever are potentially affected. And yet, simultaneously, it doesn't really surprise me that it's sort of like the cohort level. It yeah. wouldn't be damaging. That's a very mixed message I just said, but I, I think that's right. I think it's probably a nuanced um, yeah. phenomenon.
1: That's the, I mean, that's essentially what the researchers were saying. They, they kept stressing in the, you know, their statements about the study that, you know, yes, this doesn't mean that, you know, every kid should get one at any particular age and it's going to be good or bad. You might not want to give, you know, some 11 year olds a cell phone or some 13 year olds or 14 year olds a cell phone, but that, yeah, like at the cohort level, there wasn't a magic age for it that that made a difference.
0: Well, closely related, uh, it, because what do kids do when they pull up their smartphones? Social media. Um, I think in part due to somewhat uh, slipshod coverage of Francis Haugen's Facebook leak, the media kind of slouched toward this conclusion that social media just is um, across the board bad for teenagers. And um, I don't know, that just... just didn't sit right with me even before I looked into it and figured out the way that they had manipulated the polls that Facebook had done internally and were basically cherry picking them. Um, at any rate, you discuss a recent poll that doesn't bear out this assumption. Uh, what are teens themselves telling us about their social media use? Yeah, this,
1: this I thought was really interesting too, because we often rely so much on what, uh, I don't know, yes, on what people in the media and, and, you know, whistle the Facebook whistleblower and all these sort of like, sort of very vested interest voices are saying, so it's good to hear what teens themselves were saying. And uh, Pew Research Center did a study last year, and they published the results in November. Um, They surveyed a little over 1,300 teenagers ages 13 to 17 years old. And these kids, 80% of them said social media made them feel more connected to their friends. 71% said it gave them a creative outlet. 67% Sixty-seven percent said it provided them with people who could support them through tough times, and fifty-eight percent said it made them feel more accepted. So this really cuts through the idea that social media is isn't you know encourages isolation or makes teens you know feel lonely, makes teens feel um, that they have you know more to, to worry about. Um, just really challenges the idea that social media is a net negative in teenagers' lives. And in fact, only nine percent of the teens surveyed said it was mostly negative for them meanwhile about a third said it was mostly positive and the majority 59% said it's a mixed bag that it had some negative effects and some positive effects which again you know makes sense there's obviously a lot of good good parts and there could be some bad parts um just just you know this is not in this was not in this particular study but i talked to a you know Christopher Ferguson of he's a psychology professor at Stetson University for my for my algorithms piece that we're going to talk to later and we talked a lot about teens and social media use and and depression and things like that um that didn't make it into my algorithms article but he said what a lot of uh, you know social scientists say which is just that problematic social media use when it's whether it's with teens or, or adults tends to reflect underlying, you know, mental health issues. So, or just underlying personal um, issues. Like it's not, so it's not that no one, no teens are ever going to get addicted to social media or feel, you know, poorly about themselves because of it or something like that. But these tend to be things where they have, you know, an underlying depression or underlying self-esteem issues or underlying things. And social media is just one of the ways in which that is manifesting as opposed to the thing that is causing it.
0: Yeah. Theme we'll return to in the episode is, is scapegoating, superficial phenomena. Um, I think it's Mike Masnick I've seen pointed out most eloquently of like high school for a lot of people is hard. It's a hard time socially. It's awkward. It's difficult. Um, For all kinds of reasons, kids being uh, the mean little creatures that they can be, the intensely social creatures that they are, and then all the hormones. I mean, I'm kind of speaking from my own, I'm having flashbacks to my own high school experience. Like It's just a very emotional, difficult time. Um, So the fact that someone says, and, and actually this should go both ways, the fact that somebody says that they find social media intensely rewarding and the the notion that someone might say they find it intensely negative um, in either case, well, you've got teenagers going through working through their high school experience. I mean, the the popular kid, of course, is going to like social media., um, It's not clear to me that there's a a big causal relationship in in any direction. It's just mapping social relationships that are already occurring in the uh, in the world of atoms. Which uh, ties into what I think is actually the most interesting, at least to me, of all the studies you discussed, um, because it's simultaneously a really interesting finding to me, while at the same time, um, in my opinion, like there's no causal insight you can get about social media necessarily from it. We'll, We'll unpack this. Um, This is a study basically saying that if you're a parent and you think it's a good idea to withhold tech from your kids, social media or the internet, um, that you really do risk doing more harm than good. Um, At least that's what, and again, I'm, I'm putting a lot of caveats here What the correlation finds. So what does that study say?
1: Yeah, uh, I thought that this one may have been the most interesting one among these that we're talking about, too. The um, study published in Social Science Re- Research Review in August. Uh, Michigan State researchers, um, led by uh, Professor Keith Hampton, they found that being disconnected from the Internet, either because of living in a rural ar- rural area and having spotty access, or because parents severely limited screen time, was actually more of a driver of low self-esteem than time spent on social media, video games, and things like that. Um, They also found that teens who logged the most screen time also spent the most time doing in-person socializing with family and friends. So, and there there were several other findings in here too. Um, So, but, you know, Hampton, the the lead researcher, his quote was that disconnection is a much greater threat than screen time, is, is how he's sort of a summed it up and saying, you know, social media and video games are deeply integrated into youth culture and they do more than entertain. They help kids to socialize, they contribute to identity formation and provide a chance for social support. So I thought that was really interesting because, you know, what he found in his research actually really ties, it's directly what the, the teens in the Pew research study that we just talked about were, were saying themselves.
0: Um, so one thing that I just found very depressing in reading uh, through that was the notion that the only thing that correlates more strongly with low self-esteem than um, lack of access to social media was being female.
1: Yeah, yeah. That um, is that's depressing. Which uh, but it also maybe... gets towards what you were just saying a second ago, because I, I always think about that when when they do these studies like, oh, like Facebook makes kids or sorry, Instagram makes kids, you know, feel bad about their bodies, or Instagram makes kids feel bad about their looks or various things like that like being a teen girl makes teen girls feel bad about their bodies and looks unfortunately you know and any any medium in which they're going to view images of other people does that like when I was a teenager people were worrying about like um pop star pop music stars and teen magazines like 17 and teen and you know tv shows and stuff and that's and, and and it wasn't it's true like those things just like looking at pictures of you know celebrities or influencers or whatever or even your peers on Instagram today. Probably do make some teen girls feel bad about themselves, but but again, it's it's a fact of you know being a a teenager and not of you know Instagram doing some some special thing in this regard.
0: Yes, um, I yeah. So it's interesting. I, I I suppose let's say you wanted to be a you're in the anti social media camp. There's a lot you could say in response to this study. I mean, one thing that occurred to me immediately was well, kids might be more unhappy without access to social media because that's the reality we live in where if all of your friends are on social media, you are now an outcast by not having access to it. So I feel like I would, I as a parent come out with just the very weak conclusion, but something insightful nonetheless of the world being what it is, your kids' friends are gonna be on social media. So if you deprive them of that, you're sort of doing... Uh, the Carrie, uh, that's extreme, but you know, the movie (laughs) Carrie where the mother, like she'll never let Carrie go out and she's stuck in the house and she ends up, we all know where that went. Um, anyway, very interesting nonetheless. So, um, turning to the final study, and this actually to me was the least surprising, maybe just because of what I have read, but, but also this actually is strangely intuitive to me. Do video games rot young brains? And um, the research from what I can tell, because I've looked into this in the past myself, it sounds like it's pretty consistent across time that not only are video games okay, I'm assuming not in the extreme of like dawn to dusk uh, suddenly popping into my head or the, you know, we've all read the story, the guy in Japan who drank 18 Red Bulls on a 72 hour video game bender and dropped dead, putting that aside, um video games might even be slightly good for kids uh what is the science telling us
1: yeah and like you said this this one isn't so surprising because this is very much in line with a lot of research we've been seeing for for many years now um for at least you know the past decade but i feel like having grown up in the the 90s like throughout that you know that was there was so much panic about video games rotting kids brains back then that still it's sort of a we're just, you know, the, pa- the past decade or so has been spent in coming out of that. Um, anyways, this this most recent study was published in JAMA Network Open in October. Um, and it found that kids who played video games for 21 hours or more per week, which that maybe is a little bit of a surprising part. Kids who played for 21 hours or more per week uh, scored higher in various cognitive measures. It's like measures. a
0: part-time job.
1: Yeah, yeah. They, they scored higher in various cognitive measures than kids who played no video games. There was a um an MRI component of this where they looked at, the way kids' uh, brains lit, lit up in, in ways that I don't quite understand reading it. Um, but the, the basis was that theirs lit up in good ways, better ways than the ones who didn't play video games. And then they also did a cognitive, various cognitive tests of um, attention and visual processing and memory and found that they had higher scores on, the video gamers had had higher scores on these tests than the kids who didn't play any video games.
0: And of course, and it, this ties into to a very high level theme about all of these studies it is so hard to untangle causation from correlation so kids who are a little bit brighter may be more attracted to video games because they do better at them Uh, you know video games have problem solving components and they're basically just very uh the puzzles with bright lights um and so uh, you know, none of us is making a claim that if, right, right, right. that that all things being equal, you should sit your kid down in front of the video games, whether they like it or not. Play your video games so you can get into Harvard. <laughs> uh, yeah. I so I, overall that that ties into just something I think of when I read all of these studies, positive or negative. Um, so I mentioned I have three kids; they're all toddlers. Two of them are identical twins. So before they were born, I got really into like reading up on identical twins because like that's kind of weird having identical twins. Uh, I didn't even believe it when we saw the first ultrasound, like there were like two heartbeats. And I was like, wow. So the heartbeat shows up on its head too. Uh, The doctors (laughs) like, no, that's two heartbeats. Um, I read a book by Lawrence Wright, fantastic writer for The New Yorker uh, on twins and what they tell us and uh you know the takeaway and this you see this in all kinds of other stuff you can read um, you know twin identical twins in particular provide us some of the strongest research debunking the blank slate theory of development the notion you see this every now and then the the crazy dad who like sets out on a mission to make his kid a prodigy and so it's like a militant you know trains the kid um at the end of the day genes are very powerful. Um that's not to say that parenting doesn't matter and obviously if you tie your kid in the basement and only feed him bones you will mess your kid up. I'm not saying parenting doesn't matter, but that it, it for those of us who are parents and worry about messing up our kids, it is not as powerful as many people would like to think. There is sort of a DNA program that is going to run within your kids and make them into the humans that they are in large part. So I am not surprised with that high level statement having been made that it's just very hard to find causal relationships here. Um, so I think just for about the fifth time this episode we should make very clear, this stuff is very messy. And what I really appreciate you doing is just countering the other extreme conclusion that, oh, these study, you know, social media is bad or whatever. And you're making it clear of like, no, it's, Unclear. Let me show you some positive studies that counterbalance, you know, this negative uh, narrative. So, having said that, here's a question that I don't, you know, impossible question, but please speculate. Okay. Uh, algorithms are getting ever more powerful. We're seeing crazy new technologies on the horizon. Uh, those of us who've been watching generative text, like my mind, is getting blown. Do you think that in the nearish medium term future, we will hit a tipping point where um, screens, you know, once they're implanted straight into our eyes or whatever, that like really um, this will start being damaging to kids or we'll we'll hit a point where, um, you know, we have to bow down to our robot overlords?
1: Uh, I just, I I really don't think so. Because, I mean, it just, we've seen, you know, with every new sort of technology and every new, you know, it keeps getting more powerful and more powerful. And we keep, we keep worrying about the same thing. And ultimately, you know, people people have a lot more agency than I think we think when it comes to these things. Like you just talked about your toddlers, like they'll get tired of screen time and they'll walk away from them. But like, you know, I think that that kind of persists throughout life and we all bring to to these these things our own, you know, they, they interest us and we're entertained by them, but we all sort of, I think when people run into problems, this is kind of rambling here, but I think when people run into problems, it's when they don't have anything Else going on in their lives, really. I think that's when you see people really sort of get sucked into uh, conspiracy theories, or you know, just addicted to various sorts of technology. And that's maybe when the algorithms do have a, a, a bad pull on people. But but for the most part, people who are you know have well-rounded lives and have other interests and things like that, like they are capable of. I just can't imagine any sort of algorithm is going to be so powerful that, that none of us can resist it.
0: I bet you're aware of this one. I, it makes me think of the study with the uh, the rats and cocaine. Yeah, monkeys. yeah. I can't remember. where. I think, I think it was lab rats, and they could like get a hit of cocaine. And the study came out and was like, oh, if they can get cocaine, they'll just take cocaine until they die. And they, yeah. They're not even monkeys. I'm switching back and forth. Later, another study found that, well, no, those... Uh, animals were in just an empty cage where the option was sit there and do nothing or take cocaine. Yeah. And I feel like most of us, if those are the only two options, uh, you know, that would be a hard choice to resist. Whereas if they have like a wheel and the, like all the, you know, playmates and all that stuff, yeah. you know, they actually don't, it, it was not the same effect. So a weirdly uh, trad, uh, insight here of, you know, maybe family and community and other activities and hobbies are a a good thing to have. Not terribly surprising. We can all agree on that. Uh, great. Okay. So that's, we, that's a great rundown of the some positive recent research on kids and screen time. Let's turn to the broader topic, which you've already kind of segued us into of, um, algorithms and your cover story on algorithms was fantastic. Um, I think the $10,000 question that all of us are always asking, and there's been some interesting takes in one direction and another, but but the big question, you know, do platforms help cause societal problems or, you know, does social media simply reflect our society back at us? Um, I'm assuming that the answer is not 100% and 0% in either direction, but I, I think there is a clear preponderance, a clear answer here for some of us. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think like you said, like, again, this isn't, it's not that, social media um or it can it can never um exacerbate existing you know divisions and things like that or get people to pay attention to something that they all things considered better off not paying attention to but i think that yes a lot of the panic about it is overblown and a lot of the research bears that out and shows that you know it's it is just sort of um, reflecting our very polarized, very sort of uh, antagonistic moment. And I mean, you can see this in, in in lots of different ways. The polarization thing being a really good one, you know, like social media is constantly getting blamed for increasing political polarization. But um, in the United States, polarization has been increasing since like at least the 1970s. And I think it uh, started a, rapidly since then and, and started a little bit before that. And um, a lot of it has to do with the political parties and the ways that they shifted and the ways that they started strategizing things differently. And, you know, there used to be less uh, divide between your average Democrat and your average Republican than than there is now, um, you know, now there it's very much like Republicans stand for this on all things. And if you're a Democrat, you stand for this set of things. But there used to be much more overlap um, so we've just gotten much much more polarized and and you know there's various ways you can measure that this isn't related to social media one of them is that you know um political polarization has been increasing in the united states either at a much faster much faster than any than any of these other countries um there was a study that looked at like 15 different countries around the world and found that a lot of them were not polarizing as fast as us or actually it had um the opposite it had decreased polarization in the past like 20-25 years so you know and these are countries that are that are using social media just as much as us so there's just a lot of different things suggesting that things we blame on our social media are are, are actually you know things that are happening in society that are just visible because of the social media
0: yeah and the the people pouring cold water on the causal connection camp if i'll call that um it's not just uh, for those of you listening who might say, oh, well, Elizabeth writes for a libertarian mag and Corbyn works for a libertarianish organization. So that's just them, you know, very um, respected and neutral scholars are finding yes. exactly this. You know, so uh, I hope he doesn't mind me enlisting him, but Brendan Nyhan at Dartmouth yes. is one of the top people here. And he says, quote, the most credible research is way out of line with the takes. Um, and he's referring to the notion that algorithms cause radicalization. He's talking about the fact that, um, or or the accusation that social media leads to echo chambers. The research, if anything, shows the opposite, which actually, again, is another thing that's pretty intuitive if you live in um, some... Well, no, I was about to say if you live in some rural neighborhood, but if you live in some coastal urban enclave as well, uh, <laughs> the people that you interact with in your daily life may well be actually less diverse ideologically than what you see on social media. That actually kind of makes sense when you think about it. Um, so it 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 is sad to see that the people who are actually researching this are coming to this Far more nuanced conclusion, but the media narrative on the effects of "quote unquote" the algorithm sort of carries on regardless. So, and and now an issue that connects to that, you know, you write about the weirdly widespread belief that algorithms are, and I really like this quote: "Acting as a mysterious digital spell cast by big tech over a populace that would otherwise be saner, smarter, less polarized, less hateful, less radical." um naturally if you think that algorithms are super powerful then that's going to drive your belief uh about the negative effects of social media in society um that said i I mean you've already made a very good point that the united states is uh polarizing faster than other countries with social media so again looking at sort of the cohort level which I think is always the best level to look at things. If you're trying to reach scientific conclusions, you know, that would suggest that social media doesn't have an independent effect. And yet I just, I can't shake, um, the feeling that social media somehow makes things that might've happened otherwise happen more rapidly. Um, and even like I had Joe, Joe Usinski on the show, who studies conspiracy theories and, he was sort of pushing back on this and so maybe i'm just wrong and i'm just i now i'm the one operating on vibes that i can't shake but you know i i look at how quickly uh stop the steel took hold um i you know how quickly we managed to make um like masking during the pandemic make it code as a political issue and um you know it just it it Gives me sort of an icky feeling that social media might be helping drive that phenomenon faster. So, but, uh, am I onto something, or am I? Um, I'm I'm the one just operating on vibes now.
1: Well, I push back that like both of the issues you mentioned um, with the you know allegations of election fraud and in 2020 and and you know the crazy politicization of of masks and other things regarding to COVID are these were phenomenon driven by traditional media and political elites. You know, you had Donald Trump, you had state governors, you had popular um, Republican lawmakers at the national level. Like they were all pushing this narrative about these narratives about COVID. They were all pushing these narratives about election fraud. Um, So, you know, these these narratives took hold because you had people who are in traditional Uh, positions of of power and influence pushing them and then yes like people repeated them on social media but again like I don't think if you just had some random people on social media start saying them and Donald Trump wasn't pushing them at his rallies and Fox News wasn't having you know Tucker Carlson wasn't repeating them on his show every night I don't think that people would you know be believing them and sharing them in any way so and, and that's another one of the, you know, some studies that I that I mentioned in my algorithm piece. We we're just talking about that, about, you know, um, polarization being greater amongst people who are cable news consumers than people who are online. Um, I think, again, like this sort of just mistakes the the visible aspect of it. Like if like you are probably on social media a lot more than you are at like Trump rallies or, um, you know, getting email chains from people's grandpas or something like that.
0: Actually, so- I get the email chains from family members. <laughs> You know, we're
1: all if we're on social media a lot, your primary exposure to these sorts of conspiracy theories is through social media. So you think like, oh, these have to be these have to be spreading in in, in that realm. But I think that, you know, they're they're spreading at political rallies. They're spreading in private um, online forums and things like that. And it's it's just, you know, they're spreading because they're being pushed by traditional media and traditional political elites.
0: Yeah, I actually do get the like forward, forward, forward email chains (laughs) from uh, a certain generation of Americans um, who are really into that. And it always makes me think about um, when I'll pick on Elizabeth Warren, you know, I've, I've picked on this exact point before on the podcast where they call it organic communications or something like that. And that that's their word for like people talking to each other yeah. like oh we've got to stop the spread of misinformation <laughs> on organic communications it's like that is such a totalitarian thought where yeah. you're gonna block the forward 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 email chains um but and i could see how those would be even crazier than what spreads on social media or or as crazy as the worst of it
1: i think that that gets to a good point too though which is that like again like a lot of times because we can ban certain sorts of information on social media, right? Like people are like, well, that's got to be the solution. Like we'll we'll ban it on social media and then we won't see it. But, you know, at least on social media, you, all of us can see what is being, you know, what misinformation is going around. Um, And, you know, have the opportunity, even if it's, you know, very hard to do to, to counter that information, misinformation. Whereas if, you know, you banned it on social media, that doesn't mean the beliefs are going to go away. They're just going to be talked about person to person in private, they're going to be shared through email threads, they're going to be shared in private forums and encrypted messaging, you know, things and you're not able to see it and you're not able to counter it. So I think that, you know, even though people would like think that it's that it's worse than it's on social media, I I think that it's actually better.
0: Well, this ties into my earlier point about the weak the the weak solace as a parent or I don't know how to put it of of well whatever you may think of social media your kids are the other kids are on it and that does kind of force your hand away. I mean to the extent I just have a icky feeling that social media may accelerate such things. I certainly am not a strong I, I'm not a believer at all in the notion that um wiping it off the major platforms is some kind of solution. I've long said the the major platforms are well within their rights to say, look this is going to happen, but not on our watch, that they have yeah, the right totally. to moderate as they see fit. But what you're going to get, uh, given the way technology is, you know, even if I can't shake this feeling, that doesn't mean there's a quote unquote solution. People will find the corners of the internet where they can say these things. And um, the, uh, I think it was the buffalo shooter you know you look at into these mass shooters and the extent that they're online and again going to your point and affirming it i mean they get their information from all kinds of places i'm not saying it is social media but the social media they tend to use are these darker corners that are ineradicable um side note before we leave this topic uh gonzalez versus google is a huge supreme court case i actually have written at reason about it uh thanks to Reason for publishing my piece on the case. Section 230, uh, to a large degree, its fate hangs in the balance at the Supreme Court this term. In that case, the primary issue is, does Section 230 apply and protect uh, platforms as they recommend content that originates with third parties on their platforms? not the place to get into this in greater detail. We did a full episode um, on Section 230 and its path to the Supreme Court. I'll put that uh, maybe in the show notes. Um, But I just wanted to flag that a key underlying premise of the people who are attacking Section 230 in that case is this notion that algorithms are magic. Um, Because if you think of recommendation algorithms, what's at issue in this case, As basically no different than a newspaper deciding what they're going to show you in their headline or what Fox News is going to lead with on Tucker, if we want to go there, Um, then the case is quite strong that those are protected by Section 230. The main way, not the only argument they make, but a big argument they make to try and get around that is, look, algorithms are different because the targetedness of them make them into, you know... (laughs) Crack cocaine headline, you know, it's so personalized to you. It's so powerful that you are resist it. Digital fentanyl, there you go. It's big tobacco, but online. Um, so this all ties into that case, uh, which is a big case. And um, we're all watching. OK. Um, tying back into the notion that we're scapegoating. Uh, we scapegoat social media. We scapegoat the algorithm. Uh, you touch on that very well in your article. Um, Certainly neither of us is the first to make the point that algorithms are treating it as as a scapegoat. But you had some interesting things to say, I thought, in sort of asking why. And one line you actually had, you said, perhaps it's because the past decade and a half have been so disorienting. And I just, I really liked how you put that. I mean, that's an intriguing proposition. one thing that immediately pops into my head as I read that, though, is that I, I feel like that disorientation is only likely to accelerate. So, I don't know how do how do you feel? Can you elaborate on that point?
1: Yeah, um, you know, when me and, and Peter Suderman are edited this piece when we were just like chatting about why we think this panic over algorithms took place. I mean, what we kind of came down on was that yeah, like the past eight years or so have just been so strange in so many ways. Um, So much unexpected has happened. You know, um, it, it's now almost seems like seems like distant history. It's hard to imagine, kind of, but it's like, remember how surprised we were at the rise of Donald Trump? It was just like insane to most people. Everyone was sure that Hillary was going to win. And this Donald Trump thing was just like a weird blip. And then he won. And then not only did he win, but like, Sort of became the the you know figurehead of the republican party and sort of dictating what the what conservatism in the united states is all about and and that's just sort of really boggled people's minds as as it should it's surprising but you know then there was the whole russian uh you know russian interference and russian meddling narrative and i think the idea that that it wasn't just like you know they did some crappy propaganda memes and people saw them and it didn't really make that much of a difference did not fly for a lot of people because that meant that a lot of people really liked Donald Trump and voted for him over Hillary or didn't want to vote for either of them and stayed home or voted for Gary Johnson or whatever, you know? And so it was a lot easier for people to believe that these algorithms had aided the the Russian meddling and made it so irresistible that people like weren't in their right minds. And that's what happened. And then, you know, we've we've had a lot of different things, you know, we just um it's been like a very heated, you know, political climate in many ways. Um, lots of, of protests around race and criminal justice, um, very contested issues around sex and gender. Um, and then the pandemic hit, and we've got what seems like should be not a super high charge polarizing thing, things like you know, vaccines or something become this like huge front in the culture war and I think again like it just become very easy then for people to believe like you know then there was the big push about misinformation like oh it must be because of the misinformation on social media or you know conversely on the right you have like well people wouldn't you know, believe all these these woke things if it wasn't for these algorithms pushing it into their pushing it into our children's brains you know So I think it's it's just happened that you know social media algorithms rose alongside a very disorienting political and cultural period and it's been a lot easier for people to believe like no, um, you know my my fellow Americans aren't actually like this. it's it's just that the algorithms have been driving us to be like this.
0: Yeah, I, it's a question that comes up a lot on the show because it's like impossible to answer, you know, what persuades people? How do they form their opinions? And we cannot create a counterfactual world where we run everything again, but without social media and see how it goes. Um, So I you know, what are you going to do? I, I, our system, we are a Republic in which we like the people govern. And if the people are nuts, then they are going to get what they want with certain exception, like, you know, the bill of rights good and hard. Um, And I always have accepted that that's the system. I, I will say, yeah, it's, it's not like I'm some stuffy dispassionate, a uh, person sitting on the sidelines who hasn't been affected by this disorientation. I think my uh, belief in Americans as citizens with agency who govern in a republic and that's not only just our system which I continue to accept wholeheartedly but like is a sexy thing that's great we love it <laughs> has been shaken. Um one example I would give I recently wrote about the um GOP their spam email operation for fundraising. Yeah. And you look at these fundraising emails that they send, and it is mind blowing that they that that the way they pitch this is the way that they maximize the amount of money they get because the things look to revert to the Russian case like these just they look like a foreign like an incompetent foreign agency is trying to manipulate Americans. It'll say like, you have to respond within the next hour to get a 34th or 3,400% impact increase on your donation. If you don't respond, we will tell Donald Trump that you are a defector. And it's so disheartening to read those and be like, this is democracy in action. Like this is the, the voter who's the most motivated and spending money. Um, I will also note in closing, it's this is not just the Republicans. They have a very incompetent email operation, but Democrats send pretty wild emails as well. And their, their most motivated voters believe silly things that that are a mirror image. So um, that is just a long winded way of saying, yeah, it has been disorienting. It's been wild. And, and I still believe as you do that things will not advance to some crazy, I don't know, tipping point where everything becomes a black mirror episode where the algorithm is all controlling. Um, But my, my faith that that is not possible has has been shaken. I think that is true. So, I appreciate your willingness to point out that uh, algorithms are, on balance, still more good than bad. Um, I think you even go. Uh, you do a good job of doing something that I think is very important, and in, in not just saying, well, they're not bad necessarily, but like they have good uses. It's kind of insane that we have to revert and make that case. Although my long rant that I just had shows why maybe it's necessary. Um, you reminded me of how, like in the early days of Facebook, I was around. Uh, you could only see what your friends were up to by checking their profiles page by page, which like, seems like such a crazy waste of time now looking back at it in hindsight. So anyway, in closing, uh, on your algorithms piece, could you lay out a little bit You know the case you know, algorithms, a force for good, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, um, th- I mean, this isn't a grand altruistic or ground sort of a reason or anything, but one, they help us see and find things we want to see and find, right? Like you just said, like, when I, when I go on Facebook, which is, you know, very rare these days, but when I do, like, it just shows me my cousin's babies. And- Facebook is correct. That's all I want to see on Facebook. Like I don't want to see people fighting about politics on Facebook. I go to Twitter for that. Um, so, you know, it, the, the algorithm has has learned what I want to see, which is just like people I know's baby and wedding pictures on Facebook. And it shows it to me. You I don't have to like spend a lot of time going to each of their pages or anything like that. Like I can log in and I can see that. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just social media like that. It's, you know, algorithms power things like Amazon recommendations and Netflix recommendations and Spotify recommendations and stuff. They help us find music and movies and books and all sorts of cultural and entertainment products that we end up loving that we would either wouldn't find or that we'd have to spend forever searching for. And instead, you know, because of algorithms, we are able to find them in minimal time. Um, We are able to... um, even personalized shopping recommendations i know people hate them but i love them like if i if i have to see ads on social media i'm glad i'm seeing ads for things that are highly relevant to my life and occasionally like useful and occasionally i click on something and i'm like ah that is something i've been looking for and, and instead of just random ads like when you're watching television and, and this is maybe the commentary on the channels I watch, but I've like seen endless Medicare ads. I'm just like, this is not relevant to me, you know? So like, I'm glad when I'm online, when I'm on Instagram or whatever, that I'm getting ads for things I want. So I think that, you know, um, algorithms are important because they cut through issues of of information and abundance and, you know, everything abundance. They help us better find the people and the products and the information and the um, entertainment that we, that we want. Uh, meanwhile, they also do help us be better informed. Um, as, as we you know, briefly alluded to earlier, there's a lot of research showing that people who use social media a lot are um, better informed, they are higher consumers of news, they see more cross-cutting opinions, they are exposed to more um, different viewpoints. So actually, you know, the algorithms are helping, even though it doesn't seem like it sometimes, because you know, you see a lot of acrimony as, as you would if people in public were always talking about their political views. They just don't often do that. So you go online, you're exposed to a lot of uh, ideas and opinions you wouldn't normally see. And then, lastly, I think it's important to remember that algorithms do suppress a lot of information that we don't want to be super prominent in our, in our, um, you know, social media platforms or other sorts of platforms. Um, You know, people are always talking about how algorithms, oh, they're amplifying divisive speech and all that. But like, it's the same. But algorithms are also used to downplay certain sorts of content to downrank content that is considered hateful or offensive or misleading and stuff like that. And almost all of the social, I mean, that's actually, I know some people would prefer those not be in place, but I think that by and large, and sometimes they can go too far, but by and large, it's a good thing that, you know, that these algorithms are are keeping the worst of the worst content from just being constantly fed into our timelines or into our YouTube um, recommendations or our TikTok recommendations and things like that
0: we will need to do a geek tastic episode of the show on Herbert Simon and attention scarcity. Uh, I think we might've mentioned it on the show before we haven't, um, you have shown why that concept is so important and why algorithms are so useful in, um, allowing us to use our attention to, to maximum benefit. Um, Elizabeth, this has been tremendous. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, what are what is on your mind uh, next? I mean, what can we look out for you uh, from from Reason? Uh, would you like to preview anything?
1: Ah, uh, sure. In the current print issue of Reason, which will be online very soon, I've got got a piece on Kamala Har- Kamala Harris's vice presidency so far, and one on a bunch of books about how maybe the sexual revolution failed women, which is my my new thing to try and counter in various ways. So. Um, I I reviewed some of those and that's also something I'm going to be writing about more in the, in the future. Uh, so visit reasons.com, check them out, follow me on Twitter at Ian Brown and Mastodon at Ian Brown.
0: All right. Fantastic. Well, I will uh, call you back when I'm looking for, uh, you know, my first three time guest on the show. (laughs) Thank you so much again, Elizabeth. This has been great. Thank you Um, for having me this has been the tech policy podcast. I am Corbin Barthold. If you enjoy the show, please go give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. And while you do that, I will get started preparing the next one. Thank you all. Until next time.
1: The tech policy podcast is produced and distributed
0: by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, DC. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes,
1: find us online at techfreedom.org.